Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 31, Advice Unheeded, Signs Unseen, where we will be looking at chapters 64 and 65 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Sight Unseen. Okie dokie. now for the boring bits. Each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from it and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text, with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we remain unaffiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though again, we're open to that changing if someone decides to, I don't know, give us money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, as the runner of a rather lackluster Patreon, the chances of this happening are small. I'll live. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo. And that's okay, we like weirdos here. We're weirdos. Or you're our family member who's being really nice and giving us a pity listen. We'll take that too. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we're not going to stand for any kind of abuse of the author responsible for it. And now, it is time for our 45 second recap. Phoenix, it's your turn this week. You ready? Well, I guess I kind of have to be now, don't I? Well, ready or not, I got a stopwatch, so in three, two, one, go. Quoth makes a thieves' lamp and Kilvin is displeased. Manette lets slip that there's more than one way into the archives, and now the lamp has a purpose in our story. Next chapter. Quoth takes his buddies out drinking and Denna finds them at the Aeolian, only to steal Quoth away from his friends where he proceeds to spend the rest of his money on her. And then they say lots of seven-word sentences to one another about absolutely nothing. Then they plan a date to do it all again the next day. 27 seconds. You're good. Yay! No raspberries. Absolutely no raspberries. I do not want to eat any raspberries. Speak for yourself. I am speaking for myself. <laughs> One of these days, that'll change. You think that you're going to get me to like them? Hope springs eternal. Fat chance. Anyway. <laughs> Moving on, let's talk a little bit about this section, because there's a lot of foreshadowing that occurs here. Let's first start by talking about why we picked our theme. So... One of the things that I noticed in this chapter was that that thieves' lamp of Quoth's ends up being a really useful metaphor for how he looks at Denna and how she looks at him. Both of them are looking at each other, and also they 
don't necessarily want to view the whole person. They just want to view this narrow little slice of one another. And as a result, they have a relationship that seems deep, but not very comprehensive. I don't know that it seems deep. I mean, really, all we're seeing is just beginning infatuation. And it skips over the part where they actually like each other and into kind of that mutual annoyance. Yeah, they're kind of lovey-dovey and vomit-inducing. And I know what it's like to be one half of a vomit-inducing couple. Don't get me wrong. It can be fun. But there's also a lot more depth, and we haven't really seen either of them truly be vulnerable to one another. At this point, yeah, they're both wanting to avoid being seen. I would honestly say, though, that Kvothe is doing a more thorough job of making sure that he is unseen while having absolutely no intellectual curiosity about Denna. He seems to be afraid to probe any deeper, and he's also deathly afraid of revealing anything about himself. I think he also tends to project some of his own insecurities onto her. Because she gives him openings, but he's afraid to actually take those. Right. This person that has been known to be brash and confident and kind of an upstart refuses to do that when it comes to a relationship with someone that he seems so desperately to want to have a relationship with. All that being said, this is kind of cute. I'm not going to get so far down the, ugh, it's Denna, or more accurately, it's a Denna chapter. Again, I'm not sure that I don't like Denna. Not sure that I like her. All I know is I don't really like the way Kvothe acts when he's around Denna. So let's rewind a little bit and start going through the chapters. We start off with Kvothe taking his big shot at the fishery. Oh no, 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 no. We start off with him saying, I went looking for Denna and did not find her. Ugh. I don't like him being this way, but I understand why he would be this way. Infatuation runs strong in that boy. He is a now 16-year-old kid who is starved for love and affection, and this is someone who has given it to him. Ah, uh, has given him attention. Based on his time on the streets, you can understand why he would be starved for it. Yes, and I might also see why he is mistaking it a little bit. Absolutely, I understand infatuation and obsession, but the way it's being written about kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. It's not cute and sweet. It's mildly stalkerish. He strikes me as someone who is always on the lookout for his next fix of attention and affection. It's also worth noting that Denna is the first person who has really looked at him as a person since he left Tarbian. Yeah, she was the first one, but his friends definitely see him as a person. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying he's imprinted on her. Yeah, but that brings up weird visions of Twilight. I'm not saying it's aged well. He talks about looking for dinner the way you and I might talk about going to the grocery store. It's just a habit that he does. But now we get to both 
getting to show off his cleverness and the fact that he just so desperately cannot bring himself to be just like everyone else. He can't just do the assignment. <laughs> he has to basically go in and throw out his own unique spin on it. So yeah, he goes out and makes himself this bullseye lantern or thieves lantern. And though Kilvin is impressed by his skill, is not necessarily impressed by the item itself. And one thing I notice about Kilvin is that he places an extreme amount of importance on the responsibility of a creator for the results of their creation. Hmm. Death of the author, anyone? Go on. Well, and this is something that we see also, for instance, with Nobel, who created Dynamite, which he thought was going to be just really useful for mining purposes, but ended up being turned into a weapon. He bore responsibility for it and took responsibility for it. You also consider people who create weapons, they're responsible for the actions taken with those weapons. Even Leonardo da Vinci reckoned with this, designing all kinds of war machines for the Medicis, and recognizing that he owned responsibility for the death wrought with those. And it's something that Kilvin takes very seriously and is trying to impart on Quoth. One thing that I see with Kilvin is he values a few things. He wants his charges to think seriously about the methods that they use in making things. And he also wants his charges to think very carefully about the applications of those things that they make. He's aware that unintended consequences can be deadly. There's something tragic about someone who makes something for one purpose and then finds that tool changed. Think about how Einstein felt when his theories of relativity were used to help with the construction of the atomic bomb, or Oppenheimer especially. This fundamentally changed the structure of world power and it resulted in the death of millions. These are people who are engineers and scientists who took responsibility for that, even as the people who used those devices refused to. I think there is something noble about it, and I think there's something that we should all learn from it. And that's one of the things I really love about Kilvin. I do really appreciate his view of taking responsibility for the results of your actions. There have been a lot of instances recently of people refusing publicly, very, very publicly, refusing to acknowledge or take responsibility for the hurt they cause. Most notably right now, J.K. Rowling. I know we've made this point once before, but she just keeps hurting people. And it's like she thinks that she's not, or she's just getting defensive over how other people are treating her. And now we don't advocate abusing or screaming at her or treating her like subhuman for her views. 
but we do advocate the idea that maybe we don't pay her for anything that she's created ever again. And we don't display it anymore. Yeah, that's the thing that hurts, is that, quite honestly, those books did bring a lot of joy, and we modeled our podcast off of a podcast that is specifically about Harry Potter, at least parts of it. There's so many things in our home, t-shirts and decorations and such. And to be perfectly honest, now I am not nearly as upset over the idea that I did buy some things that are not licensed. At the same time, I also worry that if a transgender friend of mine comes over and sees those, they may not feel welcome. And that's something that I don't want to happen. Absolutely. I don't either. What hurts the most is how much the books that she wrote are about love and acceptance. And knowing how much her views go against that core belief of her writing. But I digress. I think we've made our position very clear. And if that surprises you at all, then you really haven't been listening to us. Anyway, going back to the book we are actually talking about. And so we get the first piece of unheeded advice. <laughs> you must learn patience, Alir Kvothe. Narrator, he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if he won't learn patience in order to get his butt back into the archives... Do you think he's going to learn patience with Kilvin, who likes him? Probably not. Kvothe labors under the belief that he is the only person who matters in the world, and that no one else will actually help him. I do appreciate also, though, that Kilvin sees right through Kvothe's bullshit and says, stop trying to grovel, stop trying to... Get things past me. False modesty does not impress me. And it's okay to admit that, yes, I did want to impress you. Absolutely. And then we get the tragic, wait, but you're going to melt down the thing that I spent so much time doing and money and all this other stuff. Why would you do that? Because you didn't think before you made it. And this brings me to a quote from a mid-century play called The Physicists. Once something has been thought, it can't be unthought. And this is something I think that Quoth is going to grapple with here. And this is, I think, something that anyone who seeks to innovate grapples with. Speaking of Quoth not having the patience to get his butt back into the archives. He meets up with Minette. <laughs> and Minette gives him a little bit of told you so. <laughs> Kilvin wasn't impressed with the modifications to the lamp. And so then, of course, Quoth asks if there are any other ways into the archives, and we get the second piece of advice that Quoth is going to ignore. Just be patient. Oh, wait, it's the same bit of advice. Yeah. You need to give Lauren more time to cool off, and it's only been a term or so. And Mr. Impatient Quoth is like, but it's been half a year! But I want to go in now! Doing his best Veruca Salt impression. It's not going to work. <laughs> but because of the way that Manette says, I will not draw you a map, 
both automatically assumes that that means there is a way in, and now he's going to find it. Turns out there is a way in, and that is being patient. Well, it turns out there's also a different way in, which is through the under thing, but we know this as future knowledge. Yeah. Spoilers! We did warn you. Anyway. And of course, Manette points out, if you do sneak in, there's a risk. And if you're caught, you will get expelled. That risk is not great enough to deter Quoth, who thinks that he is the smartest, most cunning, most clever student that has ever graced the university. And so he's going to do it anyway, and we all know that. So he goes back and he tries to buy his lamp back from Kilvin so it doesn't get destroyed. And Kilvin says, you can't buy what you made, so here have the thing. But I will personally ensure that your ash is kicked out of the university should this become a problem. It would. And he explicitly makes a point that it has to remain in Quoth's possession. He doesn't want this getting out onto the black market, and he does not want this falling into the hands of thieves. Or, you know, Davy. That will come up. Next chapter! So we start off by learning about the Gravesdale Mead scam. You buy your musician a drink. You'd be better off just giving them the three bucks. Okay, to be clear, I don't know that it's strictly a scam. But it is definitely a way for a musician to make some living off of their work because you can't just live off of drinks. Eventually that shirt will kill you. Frankly, there's nothing bad about it. You're just converting something that you can't use into something you can. But again, just give them a tip. It does somehow speak, I think, to the aversion that people have to paying for creative work. As we have spoken about before, and I'm not sure we need to get too far into. But it's a good arrangement. And here Kvothe uses it to help out his buddies. And at this point, Will and Sim have been with him through a lot of stuff that really, Kvothe doesn't know how lucky he is to have them as friends. I agree with you. And how does he treat these friends that he is so lucky to have? He leaves them as soon as Dennis shows up. Yeah. And his friends, being amazing friends, even say you'd be doing us a favor by taking him away from us. Well, because they know that if Quoth stayed, he would just resent them. He'd be miserable and their night would be ruined, so... Bye, Quoth. Have fun storming the castle. He already bought him drinks. <laughs> One thing that I notice here is he says, I had never seen Denna dressed in anything other than traveling clothes, which is exactly the same thing that he said when he saw Denna with Savoy, also not wearing traveling clothes, which makes me think he hasn't really seen her. Yeah, well, he really doesn't see her. She is a girl that has paid attention to him, and not a girl the way that Ari is a girl, and not a girl in the way that Fela is a girl, and not a girl as in the way that Mola is a girl, but a girl. She seems to be someone who returns his affection. Seems to. Seems is important. I actually do think that this little back and forth is kind of cute. 
There are loads of seven-word sentences here. Oh, yeah. Denna brings the seven-word sentences like nobody's business. Little hint for people who don't follow on Instagram, and for those that do follow, I'm sorry that I have not kept up as much as I normally would, but I go through and highlight the book, and when I find seven-word sentences that I would want to share on the podcast in our little ongoing segment at the end, I highlight them in orange. The next three pages are full of orange. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a load of highlights on here. And this is also where we discover that, of course, she remembered him. Right, because she's not an idiot. And also, it was six months ago. (laughs) Quoth is just being Quoth and not asking questions and not being intellectually curious about his dining partner and not seeming to actually care about anyone that is not him. And again, with the bullseye lantern, he wants to be able to see her, but he is afraid that she will see him. And I think a lot of other people are less inquisitive about him than he fears that she will be. And so instead of being forthright and just saying, you know what, there's a lot of things in my past that I would rather not talk about because it makes me upset... He's just like, must hide away, must not tell, must not share, must not be vulnerable. He can't even get to the point of saying that there is a part of himself that he can't share. He has to hide that that even exists. So he papers over it with these just little diversions here and there so that someone who isn't looking might not notice. Except Denna is looking, and I think Denna is curious, and I think... Denna probably would really like to get to know him. And not for nothing, but when someone is vulnerable with me, it makes me feel closer to them. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that drew us together, is that we were both vulnerable with one another from pretty much the beginning. We started by talking about our fears, our pains, our loneliness, the things that were actually real. We also, though, had a lot of discussions about geeky pop culture things. So it's not all this morass of shared pain that started our relationship, but we also didn't hide that away. Our interests drew us together, and then it was our ability to actually be open and vulnerable with one another that drew us closer and knit us together. It's that vulnerability that turns an acquaintance into a friend and then a partner. And I don't think that Kvothe is mature enough to recognize that. And so I don't think that he can be the kind of partner that Denna needs. And I don't think that he's letting Denna be the type of partner that he would need. Yeah, because like I said earlier, I think he projects his own fear of vulnerability onto her and refuses to take any of the openings that she gives him. I want to go back into some of the more cuteness and also some of the kind of throwbacks is probably the right word. We bought a loaf of bread and a bottle of a Vinish strawberry wine. Now at one point, I don't remember if this was something that I cut out or if this is something that we talked about and then I recanted or something, I don't remember. But near the beginning of the story, a bottle of strawberry wine breaks. And it reminds Kvothe 
or coat, presumably of Denna. And the part of the story that had stuck in my mind was the part where they're in Traven, and that fruit wine is not necessarily strawberry wine, and that's not the memory that this is ticking. The memory that was brought back to Quoth or Coat or what have you was this date. Yeah, uh, the bottles that Coat keeps in the Waystone Inn do seem to correspond with important people and events from the life of Quoth. I notice the way he polishes them, he does so in a way that goes beyond just being a responsible proprietor at an inn. He does so almost lovingly in a way that speaks to a deeper connection. There are some charming and cute things that happen. Denna removes her shoes and dances through the shadows. She's able to be carefree around him. Like, because he doesn't ask too many questions, because he doesn't seem too curious, we get a little bit of the manic pixie dream girl. But I'd also argue that through this story, she really isn't that. In many ways, Quoth is kind of her manic pixie dream guy. Kinda. He teaches her to be carefree and appreciate the arts. I think that that might be how Quoth wants to see himself, but I don't think that that's true. Mostly because, you know, in further chapters, Denna, without Quoth's influence, finds a patron. She probably has a lot of musical interest and talent, but again, Quoth is uninterested in asking about her. But again, they talk about everything and nothing, and mostly it's nothing. And Quoth enjoys his time with her. But when she asks things like, what were you thinking? He specifically says that he could not tell her the truth. He's so afraid of offending her that he won't speak to her. He's afraid that she doesn't like him perpetually. That seems to be an ongoing thing, even as she pretty much flat out tells him that she does like him and definitely wants to get to know him better. There is the, uh, one of the masters at the university told me that there were seven words that would make a woman love you. I made a deliberately casual shrug. I was just wondering what they were. And she responds after several seven words. <laughs> Accurate. Do you see how much orange? <laughs> oh, yeah. You shouldn't bother wondering. You spoke them to me when first we met. You said, I was just wondering why you're here. From that moment, I was yours. Right, Quoth. She's hitting you over the head with the gold brick of the obvious bat. Yeah. And I think it's really cute on her part. And I know every time that we have a Denna chapter, we tend to spiral back into this ah kind of tone. And I don't want to always do that. She's really sweet and saying, well, how do you think that I could possibly forget the cute little redhead that left me for the university. That's not something that happens to me very often. And they have these conversations about her name and what headspace she was in at the time that she chose to be that person. Names can definitely define you and names can influence how others see you. There is a difference between Denna and Diane. 
Diane seems a little more regal and a little more... Noble? Maybe noble in the terms of, like, status, rather than noble as in the terms of personality or virtue. Denna seems a little younger and a little more soft. I know right now, speaking of names, I myself am going through a bit of a quandary because Phoenix is not my legal first name, but my legal first name was given to me by someone who treated me poorly. That's about the nicest way I can put it. And it's triggering for me. It's something I don't like being associated with. Now, I would eventually like to work in a workplace that has coworkers and social outlets and the ability to work on a team that is not just you and me in our guest bedroom. But I'm finding it more difficult, not just because of mass unemployment and all these other things. This happened before that started, where calling myself Phoenix on a professional level, on a professional website, on LinkedIn even, seems unprofessional to a lot of people who are doing hiring. Because it's kind of in that, oh, come on, that's made up, which I would counter all names are made up, but it doesn't sound normal. And people do look at your name and decide whether or not you're worthy of having a callback. People do look at a name and decide what kind of person you are if you're a Renee or if you are an Eliza or if you are a Jessica or a Jess. Those two names are different. They are different people. And there's a very specific class of people that I allow to call me William. Those are specifically people with doctorates. <laughs> I figure if you've gone to that much trouble, that much student debt, that much postgraduate education, you can call me William if you like. Anything less than that, it's Will. Thank you. <laughs> Look, I don't care if you've got a master's degree. You're calling me Will. All you <laughs> took was an extra couple years of grad school. Mm -mm, still Will. <laughs> right. But you are definitely not a William. Oh, no. No. And you're not a Liam. Nope. You are definitely Will. And in this case, Denna, who chooses a different name, seemingly at random, Seemingly also maybe depending on her new romantic partner. I don't know. Like her romantic partner du jour. I think in some ways it's a way of having a mask and in some ways it's very, very freeing. Having a name that is specific to another person to have them call you something in particular can be kind of special. Yeah, pet names are fun. You are the only person that is allowed to call me by my pet name, and I don't want to say it so that everyone else knows what it is, so that everyone else feels entitled to call me it. And similarly, I have a pet name that only you call me. And that's just for the two of us to privately use together and makes us smile. Although I will admit that I think somewhere along one of the podcasts, 
that has been revealed. It's probably true. <laughs> You'll just have to go back and listen to all of them to try and catch it. <laughs> and the ones that are on Patreon, because I'm not sure where it was. Well, audience, you know what you have to do. Subscribe to our Patreon so that you can figure out what our pet names are. Well, no, what his pet name is. Mine isn't there. Anyway, back to the story. But the point is, these sorts of pet names are kind of soul names. They communicate intimacy. I think in many ways because Denna had no real expectation of attachment to Kvothe when she gave herself that name for him to use. It was sort of an off-the-cuff, no-strings-attached, no-effort-to-impress name, which in some ways makes it more honest. And it might, in that form, be more of her real name, regardless of if she named herself that or not, than any of the other names that she's gone by. It is notable that every single name she goes by is starting with a D. And it's also convenient because she can just sign her letters D, and he knows. <laughs> True. So we go ahead and spend the rest of the evening with Kvothe and Denna, walking about and talking about nothing. And then back to the point of sight unseen. Kvoth says it was as if we were also strangely deaf. Yeah, there's an element of hearing without listening. So we danced very carefully, unsure what music the other was listening to. Unsure, perhaps, if the other was dancing at all. And I think that that speaks to the need for them to get out of their own heads. And that's not easy to do. We wrap up the chapter with Kvothe returning to the Aeolian to find that Sim and Will have gone off with lovelies of their own. And Diak, there's something that I caught. He wants to talk to Kvothe about his infatuation with Denna. And he says, looks, Kvothe. And I made sure that I was right and that this wasn't kind of a weird typo because we have multiple copies of this book. And I went and looked at the 10th anniversary edition because I highlight the beat up crappy version that we got from a used bookstore. But I'm wondering if he was going to say, look, son, if he was going to say something else, if it was a term of endearment because he's very young, if there's something else i took it as an almost fatherly expression here because there's clearly some affection between diok and quoth he does think fondly of him and he does want to look out for quoth's best interests so i think son is probably what he was going to say before realizing it would be inappropriate patronizing but there is something kind of fatherly here saying hey you're young I know this person, be careful, because you will break your heart if you're not. In a great bit of foreshadowing, Diok says, women are like fires, like flames. And then Kvothe says, my heart is made of stronger stuff than glass. And as we will see next week, there is, again with the fire and broken glass. And further ignored advice. <laughs> but do we expect anything else from Quoth? 
Again, hearing without listening. And ultimately, he was young, he was foolish. I don't know how wise he was, though. He thinks he was wise. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. And now it's time for us to talk about our Phronemos of the Week. It's my turn this week. And so our choices, I mean, again, can never be both. <laughs> Duh. So our choices really are Kilvin, Manette, Diok, and Denna. Of those three, the one that I continually radiate back to is Kilvin. As we've discussed earlier, he talks about people's responsibility for the things they make, like Oppenheimer, Nobel, Einstein, and also thinking generally just about the consequences of your action. He says, a moment of forethought is like nine moments in the fire. And that's why Nine in the Fire is the name of the chapter. He's thinking about what he will need to do in any given instant and what he can do to prepare ahead of time so that when something happens, when a crisis happens, he can act quickly because he's done all the thinking already. So I think there's something there that's important. I know I struggle with this as a person. Like, I don't necessarily plan ahead the best, and I can sometimes get a little caught up in things and I seem to freeze up because I'm doing the thinking that maybe I should have done ahead of time. And it's partly why I've asked you to think about maybe taking a few seconds, stopping, don't act, until you've thought about it. And Kilvin has done all of his thinking days ago, weeks ago, months ago, maybe even years ago. <laughs> when it comes to eventualities within the fishery, which is important because otherwise it's an extremely dangerous place. And he also thinks about how his current actions will affect future events. And it's not enough for something to be possible. It also has to be a good idea for him to pursue it. He is all about not just coulda, but shoulda. And economy of his attention, his actions his choices he does seem to weigh which ones are actually worth it he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on empty niceties but he's also not unfriendly he's not unkind he would prefer that everyone was as direct as him though oh yes as i say kilvin has a very practical way about him that is not just about knowing what the right thing to do is, but putting yourself in a position so that you can act in the right way. And that's why I've chosen him as Arfrenimos. And I think Quoth really can learn a lot from Kilvin, though I think he sometimes misses the most important lessons. But that doesn't mean we have to. Yes, I like that. All right, and now it's time for us to shift our focus to one of the other masters. Now we're going to talk about an interesting fact of the week, and let's see if it's one worthy of Master Elodin. What do you have this time? I am in a little bit of a quandary because I have a few that I find very interesting. And while I would like not to just tell you all of them today, because I think that they're each interesting in their own right, and that you will find the first one interesting, and the second, and the third, and you will not make me have to have raspberries after any one of these. I'm left with having to figure out which one of them I want to tell you first. 
Well, there's nothing for it. And I'm just going to dive in with the first one that I have written down. I guess people are just going to have to wait the next couple of weeks and join us again later. That's right. Keep them wanting more. Now you've got me wanting to switch what I tell for a reason. Damn it. No, go with the first one. I will go with the first one. Alrighty. So this is one that I wanted to tell you yesterday, but I held my tongue. Because yesterday we redid your hair dye. And by necessity, we did not want to have you wear your glasses because green hair dye on your glasses, staining all that wonderfulness. And so you squinted a bunch. So obviously most people, especially those with glasses, instinctually know that squinting can help you see blurry and out of focus things much more clearly as you squint at me. Thank you. But do you know why? Got a few ideas. I suspect by denying light into your eyes, you force your pupils to dilate, thus letting more in. You are very, very close, but not right. Okay. All right. So the reason that we see things as blurry or out of focus is because for most of us, at least those with imperfect vision, like the two of us, our eyes aren't perfectly spherical and our lenses aren't shaped exactly right to be able to get the light to focus properly on our retina. It winds up focusing either in front or behind the retina. If it's in front, then we're nearsighted. If it's behind, then we're farsighted. So one of the kind of common sense ideas about why squinting could possibly adjust how sharply you see something is that it feels like squinting would change the shape of your lens in your eyeball. And then that brings things into focus, but that's not really what's going on. You were really, really close with the limiting light. What squinting does is it reduces the amount of light hitting your pupil. It doesn't dilate your pupil or anything. But this limits the light rays that enter your eyes to the space at the center of your lens and makes it less likely that light will need to bend inside your eye to reach your retina. However, it will also make your depth perception worse. Much like using a higher aperture on a camera will change the depth of field, bringing everything in the picture into focus. And you can achieve the same effect in a completely different way. You don't have to use your eye muscles and potentially give yourself a headache. You could just squeeze your first finger around and make a little itty tiny hole and put it up to your eye and things will be much more in focus, but they will also have the depth of field just messed with. Your depth perception will be completely off. Can confirm. It's really weird. <laughs> so that was the first of my current bank of interesting facts. That was actually very fascinating. I appreciated it. All right, everybody, you're going to have to tune in in the next couple of weeks to find out what the rest of them are. Awesome. <laughs> I'm looking forward to a good run of interesting facts from you. Thank you. All right, and with that, it's time for us to share our seven words. It's my turn from the books, and I was spoiled for choice this week. Because, Dena. 
So I chose, is that why you talk so much? <laughs> Which is definitely one of the things that I highlighted. What I find even better about that particular one, it's sandwiched. I was just wondering what they were. Is that why you talk so much? Hoping to come on them by accident? There are so, so many, everybody. I mean, he drinks even more than he talks. I suppose I'd better take him then. I was hoping to find you here. Yeah. In terms of his attempts to find a new way into the archive, if it existed, I could find it. But yeah, I thought that was a pretty good one. I agree. All right, and so you have seven words from life. What do you have? Be around people who make you better. I like that one. We both feel that way. I know that in a lot of cases, you feel like you have to remain friends out of an obligation with someone, even if they don't treat you well or make you act in such a way that you are no longer proud of who you are. This happens more with blood-related family. I feel like a lot of people choose to put themselves into situations where they will be miserable because they feel like the fact that they are blood-related to a person who is unkind to them means that they are inextricably tied to that person like forever I'm here to tell you that you're not you know sometimes you don't surround yourself necessarily with the people who make you better you know influences that make you less happy about who you are when you're around them you can see yourself being a different person around certain other people around you I am a much more calm collected, happy person than I was around people who made me into a much more anxious, frightened, upset, and volatile person. I'm really glad that I can be that for you. And I gotta say, I'm a better person around you. You bring out the best in me and I really appreciate it. I think those are good seven words. Thank you. And on that note, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 66 and 67 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Bystander Effect. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, early access to each of our episodes, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding!
All warmed up now? I think so. Remember the more innocent times when that was the best thing on the internet? I mean, I think it is still the best thing on the internet, but it is far from the only thing on the internet. <laughs>